This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why just transition is the new net zero, why 5G wireless is essential for scaling climate tech, a newly minted chief carbon officer aims high, and how becoming a circular economy professional is now a matter of degree. We're too cool for school this week on 350. It's December 10th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her saddle back in Midland Park, New Jersey, it's the always festive Green Biz editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. I missed you already. Uh, it was so good to have you out here for the past mm -hmm. week and to have you uh, get together with the rest of the team who never gets to see you enough and a few people who you never <laughs> met. I'd never met. So we're all... I, yeah. It was, it was a great get together. And, it, was. Uh, um, it was. Did you uh, feel like you, you're well integrated into the Greenbiz family? It felt great to get, to get a jolt of, uh, of inspiration from all of our wonderful analysts. Got to spend some time with them and, and of course, all of the other players. There's so many of us. I'm boggled by how quickly we're growing. It's uh, quite quite uh, exciting. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. I love, I'm a big, um, I love December. I, I'm a uh, sort of a year-end reflections kind of geek and love the holiday season. And it's just always a great, great time for me to recharge. So I feel recharged and recharging. So. <laughs> and it's only the 10th of December. So you've got and another three weeks. it's only the 10th. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. We've got another three weeks and it. Yeah. It was wonderful to debate the strategy with you and, and the rest of the editorial team. Exciting things, exciting things, folks. Good coverage <laughs> coming. It's Not good coverage a, necessarily positive, but coverage. <laughs> ah, will be some of that as well. It's going to be a great yeah. 22, 2022. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, let's uh, not look too far ahead. And in fact, let's look back right now at the Week in Review. I'm going to start with your story, Joel, this week, your uh, essay, which you decided to tackle um, another big, big topic the just transition and uh, why the just transition is the new net zero. I think um, we, we talk about the just transition at GreenBiz and have been for quite a while, but I loved how you actually helped us define it a little bit. Um, Cause I, I, I think we use, and I think it's part one of your points is, is we, the collective, we uh, GreenBiz and the community are using this term. And probably many of us haven't really thought about the deep implications and history but so I wonder, I was wondering what, as, as I always do, what triggered this particular uh, thread for you this, this past week? 
Well, I think it came out of uh, our time in Glasgow when we were uh, at COP26 and listening to uh, the conversations and, and watching the sort of the general zeitgeist and uh, just transition kept coming up. And I was curious about that because it hadn't really been part mm-hmm. of the uh, the global negotiation up to up to that hmm. point. It had been cropping up, as you said, for years. It actually dates back to the 70s, the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk a little bit about that in the piece. But it's also one of these things, uh, and I'm not sure I really defined it in this piece. In fact, I actually uh, sort of defined all the different ways it's being defined as as both something um, at local and global, locally in terms of the local power plant or local uh, utility or, or, or other organization that's, that has to transition from the, uh, the fossil fuel world or the dirty economy into a cleaner one. But it's also being used globally to talk about the the money that rich countries pay to poorer ones to help them finance their transition in whatever form that that needs to take, whether it's assistance for stranded workers or building out uh, new clean infrastructure. And and so this is one of those terms like net zero that just gets used and used and eventually overused and abused. And and I really wanted to call into question before we go too far down that path to, to sort of Mm-hmm. you know make sure that we're using it correctly and and also just beware that this is going to go the way of net zero and the, the, what i meant by that is that one of these terms that uh, gets embraced and and used and all of a sudden it's showing up in in corporate communications obviously the activist and advocacy world and government and international diplomacy uh, and then it starts to be applied to things that were, it was never really intentioned and then there's a backlash. Uh, activists, journalists, uh, others start to hold folks accountable for using the word inappropriately. The word greenwashing will come up, or maybe it'll be, you know, transition washing, or who knows what um, it'll be <laughs> called. And then, then all of a sudden, there's uh, you know sort of a backlash to the backlash where the professionals come in, and the consultancies and others, and they start to develop programs and frameworks and best practices and metrics and all that kind of stuff. And um, and gin up quite a, a bit of billable hours along the way, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, mm-hmm. we've seen that with net zero. And I was just really, you know, sort of waving a warning flag about just transition. It's a it's a, an important term. I mean, and by the way, who isn't in favor of taking care of those who are going to be left behind as we transition from fossil fuels to to cleaner technologies and you know, gas burning cars to electric vehicles and, and all those all the things that are that are in the works. Um, we need to take care of people. And that's got to be part of the of of the climate strategy uh, locally and globally. And, and I just really wanted to make sure that we don't, you know, get too too far off off base as we use this term. I have a question for you, because I, when I was reading it and I this I've been asking many of the folks that I speak with in the sustainability community about the sort of how they're integrating um, the concepts of environmental justice. So so indigenous communities, but also diverse communities and communities that have not had an opportunity for this before. Is that sort of the same thing? Is that is this, this, is this part of the same thing? Um, you know, is it, or is that just a small, teeny sliver of it? Well, it's it, it's it's part of it. It's not. I'm not sure it's a, t- a, a teeny sliver because it, it, it. You know, this is 
one of these, you know, <laughs> act locally, think globally kinds of things. It's going to be different in every nation, mm -hmm. every region, every community. Uh, there are some communities where, um, you know, indigenous uh people of uh, First Nations up in Canada, they are, um, you know, this is a big issue of, of what happens you know, if you log their land. Uh, you know, that's a, a right. environmental justice issue. And so it's all part of the same, if you will, ball of wax. Um, but, you know, that's, I guess, what we're, this will take on new flavors and new meanings and new frameworks over time as, as we you know, just transition. Just transition is kind of early days, I guess. Even though it's been around for a long time, in the climate conversation, we're still figuring out what it means and 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 what do we roll up into it? And is everything that people related become part of the just transition? Um, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but I, I do think that we. It's important, you know, and and as I. As I said, concluded the piece. It's it, this is not just an academic exercise because we're about to invest trillions of dollars in the way we power and manufacture and move people and you know buildings and everything else. All the the, the new technologies, the uh, build back better plan here in the United States, if that gets passed, and we're going to be reinventing a lot of our economy and and we'll be enacting laws. There'll be regulations that that, that look at all those things, and so we really need to create the conditions for success in every sense of that word, not just from a climate and environmental perspective, but from a human perspective. And and to do that, we need to speak the same language and, and hold one accountable for what we say, hold one another accountable for what we say. And and I think that uh, this, you know, it's a long answer to your short question, Heather, but I think, you know, we're, we're all figuring this out together. Yeah, that's pretty clear because I everyone that I've asked that question of hasn't really had an answer to it. How, how this, how they marry these issues, uh, these concerns into their quote, sustainability and quote strategy, um, you know, corp from the corporate standpoint. So definitely something that's on my mind and I'm really glad you wrote about it because it's, it is a term I use, and I'm now being, going to be more thoughtful about how I use it. Well, I like to illuminate the complexity, but but that brings us to a, a story that you did this week on the complexity <laughs> of 5G wireless and, and and its impact for scaling climate tech. Uh, really interesting topic. I, I don't know that most people wake up in the morning thinking about 5G wireless, so maybe <laughs> you should give us a little bit of a, of a, of a background on that. And then uh, what's the climate tech connection? Yeah, so um, <laughs> I know I geek out on things a lot. 5G wireless, the fifth generation, it's it's the uh, broadband wireless that I'm referring to. And um, if you look up on the little corner of your, your mobile device, um, you'll see what cellular data network you, you're riding on. And I, I happened to kind of go off on this topic while I was in the East Bay. Um, uh, you have 5G there, um, which, which means a couple of things. One is... Uh, it's faster, um, and the thing that inspired me to to take a stab at this particular piece is that the um, the rate of adoption in 2021 was quicker than was anticipated. Um, as we move from previous generations of wireless networks and the infrastructure to this this faster network, it, we're going to be covering about two billion people by the end of this year, especially in China and North America. So that's just a, a, a bit of context for you. 
Um, why is it so interesting? Well, it's 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 interesting for a number of reasons. Um, a couple of the the really high level one are that it, it's faster, low lower latency, um, and higher capacity. So like more data at, it can pass over it, and it's going to be really important for the Internet of Things, a, a concept we've been talking about for years and years and years. At least I have been. <laughs> maybe maybe not everyone, but. Um, for for the climate tech world, it means a number of things. First of all, it means that we could have applications that help able and automate some of the emissions reductions plans in really some of the most most um, emitting, highly emitting sectors: power, transportation, buildings, manufacturing. So if you if you take a look at manufacturing, for example, um, the way that um, you guide vehicles around a, a manufacturing floor. The, the robotics that that are that are making equipment. Um, how how quickly they they can do things. Whether they can do things in smaller batches um, and so forth. So that, like the data that's 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 um, pouring in to do them. From a from a you know an agricultural perspective, there's all sorts of interesting implications from um, precision ag, uh, measuring things like soil carbon, um, getting that up into the cloud more quickly. Um, so it's I guess it really comes down to more data, faster data, data from a lot more things, and how that can apply to everything from smarter manufacturing and therefore energy, more energy efficient manufacturing, but also climate intelligence, like where we're get, how we're finding out information about deforestation, um, how we are acting on energy signals from weather change, changing the weather pattern, water, too much water, not enough water and so forth. And so this is just one of those foundational things that um, I think we've been talking about 5G wireless for, for for quite a while, and it kind of tipped in this past year. So that's why I wrote about it um, and kind of ge- geeked on for a little while about what's and, going on. And yet that's not without complexity, as there always is. And there's the controversy over whether 5G could interfere with the altimeters on on airplanes. And those are the, the mm-hmm. devices that tell the pilot exactly how far off the ground you are, this, uh, the plane is. Right. And it, it's what enables that... Uh, Nice three-point hmm. landing when you're lucky enough to have one of those when you arrive at your destination. Um, and mm-hmm. it's unclear whether um, this is truly a controversy or I've, I've read that it's also a bit of a interagency rivalry between the Federal Aviation Administration and the Federal Communications Commission. And I don't really want to go there. I just like, oh, my God, please don't don't tell right. me about that. <laughs> so but it's unclear. Do you, do you have any sense of whether this is going to be a setback or, or cause any issues ah. for the 5G rollout? I doubt it. Um, I mean, I think the, the bigger controversy for the 5G rollout will be the energy implications. So like it uses, if it's done right, it uses less energy, but there are, are more of these things. I mean, I don't know that people realize this, but 5G is more distributed also. So there's more of these antennas in different, and, and that's probably part of the issue with the, the FCC and, and the aviation administration that there are more of them. So you know, even though they use less energy, each of them, they there are more of them. So it could be a, also an energy question. Or, 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 well, we're doing this to take down power consumption, but is it going to actually increase it? And as more data is running through the clouds, you know, so it, it, it's um, sort of the perpetual question about like, as you get more data, you're you're needing to drive the infrastructure for more data. So 
I don't know. Who yeah. knows? And around um, and around but, and around we go. But around, but, uh, but it yeah. does make, like I said, it does make for some pretty interesting applications. I know AT&T, you know, they're pretty... They're pretty excited about it. One of their um, the sort of connected, they have this thing called the Connected Climate Initiative. They they announced a few weeks back, and there is there it's their vision to help their customers essentially reduce emissions by a gigaton by twenty thirty five. And five G is a huge part of that. Um, like that that infrastructure and foundation is necessary for many of the applications it's talking about. So, yeah. Um, well, yeah. I hope that all of the uh, the outmoded 4G uh, technology doesn't create a whole nother bench of e-waste that they're working on. How do we uh, give that a new mm-hmm. life? But mm-hmm. that, in fact, brings us to our third story we want to talk about, about circular economy. See mm-hmm. what I did there? Uh, this is a nice. piece that uh, senior editor Dion Anderson wrote about uh, a new PhD program uh, at the University of Pittsburgh uh, for uh, those interested in the circular economy, I think that was pretty pretty interested uh, interesting mm-hmm. to see, and, and it's, it's it's sort of a natural evolution of the field that as you you know is the call for more and more professionals uh, grows, and there is a that going on as well. Uh, there is a need for uh, for higher level thinking. University of Pittsburgh, of course, uh, as the whole Pittsburgh region with Carnegie Mellon and, and University of Pittsburgh uh, have um, established themselves in the engineering field, uh, autonomous vehicle, vehicles and a number of other things. So it makes sense that they would be creating this uh, this program, which is uh, mm-hmm. part of the Mascaro Center for Sustainable Aviation. Uh, and what was interesting about it also is that it's uh, partnered to do this. It's partnering with a company called Covestro, which um, mm-hmm. I believe is is uh, uh, which is headquartered uh, globally in in Germany, but has a U.S. I think headquarters in in, in the Pittsburgh area, and and they're uh, you know a company that from what I know, uh, well the plastics and polymers and plastics producer, uh, so they've invested in this, and uh, it's an interesting uh, you know corporate academic partnership. Um, I, I guess it's a good thing. What, what do you think, Heather? Yeah, so I'm going to actually bring up another company in a moment. But yeah, Covestro is, is really um, advocating the whole concept of chemical recycling, right? So the recycling of plastics, and that's kind of, I think, part of their play is they're trying to get more, um, you know, the next generation working on these technologies and, and also trying to get the, the folks in this area thinking about um, the possibilities. I, I love the fact that this is in Pittsburgh. I mean, because if uh, think about it, the Alcoa is also near Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and they're doing a lot with uh, recycling with obviously with aluminum um, and needing to think, figure out ways of, of, of improving improving how that is managed and, and, and you know, the whole process behind that. And, and when you, when you think about like the places you could do something like this, you know, industrial centers that need to transition see what I did there to a, a new economy play, right? And 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 that where there needs to be um, a different sort of thinking about job possibilities um, and what do the folks that were in the steel industry and, and in, you know, Alcoa and like, chem, you know, how do these, where, where do they go? Where, where's, what is the possibility in the future? What is the next generation um, working on? I'd love to see, you know, this is, this is great for like, the future students. I'd love to see more attention to things like 
reskilling, right? So I, this program, and I don't think it includes this at all at this point, but having programs that help in, incorporate these, those, the cradle to cradle thinking, the systems level thinking um, into uh, new certificate programs, um, new, new degree programs that help folks um, move from, from one industry and one world to another. So um, any, any, any kind of uh, focus on this, I think is a good one. Um, I'm always a little bit, um, maybe actually, I think you have a, a concept of this. I don't really know how common it is for corporations to essentially, and I don't know if they're endowing it, but they're, they're paying for it. Um, you know, this, this program, like, is that common? Is this common? I think it is this these days. Uh, yeah. you, you go to, you know, business schools and, and they're often named for, uh, you know, a company, uh, um, or, or at least a founder of a company. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when we walk through the halls of the Haas Business School over here at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, you know, half the rooms are, are named after, you know, Wells Fargo or Bank of America or mm-hmm. uh, Levi Strauss or Salesforce, one of the local, uh, you know, companies. Um, and so one way or the other, uh, they're they're doing that. Whether I don't know whether this the nature of this program. I mean, the the way it's funded and the way it's partnered is is unique. I suspect not, and particularly in engineering, where uh, one of many fields where there's a, a ready, uh, hungry uptake of of the workforce that is eager for them to graduate so they can you know start hiring them at considerable salaries. So I think. Um, not just making sure that those uh, uh, graduates are educated in certain ways, and then having the name recognition uh, and being at the table, literally where 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 these things happen, where there's going to be a Covestro in this case, uh, employees in the room helping educate. Uh, you know, it can be problematic. Uh, I'm not saying that it is. Uh, this is uh, a little bit dicey in terms of uh, what are they learning and what are they not learning about alternatives. Um, mm-hmm. What's being? It's not just what's being taught; it's it's also what's being left out. I like the fact that at least on its face, as you mentioned, that this is, you know, talking about system lo- systems level thinking because these things do get designed into a system; they're not just standalone widgets anymore. Um, so we will see. Uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, thing that we should be checking back on in a year or two to mm-hmm. to see what's going on and and how well it's working for everyone involved. Indeed. And I actually, I'm going to make one little last thing here, a plug. Uh, This is part of our new higher learning uh, column, H-I-R-E learning. Um, And so stay tuned for more uh, focus on this sort of program. The Business Council on Climate Change in San Francisco is a group that brings together like-minded organizations to incubate and scale approaches that address climate change. Its members include well-known software companies such as Autodesk, Google, and Salesforce, financial services firm Wells Fargo, and consulting organizations Three Degrees and Oliver Wyman, and others as well. Past initiatives have seen the group collaborate on power purchase agreements for solar energy and for investments in soil carbon sequestration research. One of its latest efforts is focused on encouraging corporate carbon removal investments. Joining me to chat about the new program is Maura Fallon-McKnight, Executive Director of Business Council on Climate Change, and Claire Fitzgerald, Sustainability Manager with Autodesk. Ladies, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thank you. Thank you. 
Maura, let's start with you. What is the Business Council on Climate Change? Uh, give us a little bit more context about the organization. And what are you really hoping to accomplish on behalf of your members? Yeah, and first of all, it's really great to be here. Appreciate appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, the Business Council on Climate Change is a membership-driven organization um, working with sustainability leaders in the corporate space. We're based in San Francisco. Um, obviously, many of our members have a global footprint, and we currently have 25 members in our membership. Our main focus is really to bring members and companies together to collaborate across companies, right, to take action that addresses the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, that takes a lot of different shapes and sizes. Uh, and uh, But for this initiative in particular, um, the Carbon Removals Initiative, back in 2020, we decided to launch this initiative for a couple of reasons. You know, first, it was becoming increasingly clear, you know, based on the science that we're all hearing and tracking, that uh, we are not going to be able to meet our mid-century goals um, with avoidance alone in terms of our climate climate efforts. So we need to start investing in solutions that actually pull carbon from the atmosphere. And yet the removal space is incredibly complex for those of us, even those of us that have been talking about it for a year and a half with peers, right? It's still complex. We still, I included trip over myself and use the wrong mm -hmm. terms here and there, right? It's so mm -hmm. it's, it's tricky, right? But we need to start getting comfortable with this space very quickly. And so we wanted to help at the Business Council on Climate Change. We wanted to help provide pathways for companies of various sizes to start to enter this space and develop strategies, right? And they need help. They can't do it in a vacuum. They need their peers. They need experts, right? Um, and also the reason we decided to launch this initiative is because there's a real need to drive growth in this market, right? Um, and drive prices down. And everyone realizes that. So there's this chicken or the egg thing going on. Um, and then also in terms of timeliness, you know, this moment that we're in, um, and we all just, you know, witnessed COP happening and a lot of what came out of that. But we're seeing more and more companies and governments set net zero goals. There's a movement happening there finally, right? And what that means is each company eventually is going to have to deal with what's called their residual emissions. Um, and how they go about doing that is most likely with carbon removals. So they all see the writing on the wall. And yet it's such a complex space that that they want and need some support, mm -hmm. you know, entering into that. So also at BC3, you know, it's like we need to remind each other and other organizations, other companies, like that the risk, this is a complex space. There are a lot of unknowns, right? It's a nascent space. It's emerging in front of us. But the risk of doing nothing when it comes to climate change is now much greater than the risk of doing something in the face of the unknowns. So um, what what exactly are the, re the deliverables related to this, this initiative, the new one? So, you know, in a nutshell, our aim is, is to inspire and catalyze more corporate leadership in the removal space, right? We see this as, as a huge opportunity for corporate leadership. And so right now our deliverables, we're, we're approaching this work um, with two key efforts. You know, earlier this year, we developed a quick start guide um, to exploring carbon removals. We did this in partnership with Autodesk and Atlassian. Carbon 180 and Anathesis. So this toolkit basically is publicly available, um, but it's laying the groundwork to support sustainability leaders building their own capacity so they can bring in their executive teams, bring in their finance teams um, to develop strategies. So we did that mm -hmm. piece. You know, it's publicly available. Folks can Google it. Um, BC3 Carbon Removals will get you the toolkit. And you know, the other, you know, key deliverable is we really see the need for more collaboration across companies in this space. So we're bringing companies together. Um, the second element of our strategy is to, we just recently launched a carbon removal buyers forum to bring companies together 
that are at the stage of putting together their strategies, right? We're also bringing in outside experts so they can learn alongside their peers and experts. And it's open for companies beyond our membership to join that effort. Um, the hope is that this group can help vet technologies share their strategies as they're developing them, explore new financing mechanisms together uh, and get comfortable with the unknowns. And I think the mm -hmm. early deliverable goal is help people develop strategies, right? Learn together. Um, the long-term goal is we hope to take coordinated action together, potentially yeah. looking at specific investments or projects together. Got it. Got it. Wonderful. So Claire, where is Autodesk on this complex and, and wonderful and strange carbon removal journey? Sure. So, so far we've been investing in carbon removals in two areas, and I'll tell you a little bit about each. The first is in our work to make Autodesk's business operations more sustainable. Last year, we made a commitment to net zero carbon emissions across our business and value chain. This is a commitment that goes in tandem with our science-based greenhouse gas target. And to reach net zero carbon, we created the Autodesk Carbon Fund. We have an internal price on carbon of $10. We apply that across our scopes one through three of our footprint. And then we invest the fund in efficiency and also to zero out our remaining emissions. And we do this each year. So we are you know, investing in efficiency projects and renewable energy projects and carbon offset and removal projects. We're looking for projects that align with Autodesk's impact opportunity areas. That's in energy and materials, in health and resilience, and work and prosperity. And this past year, we made our first purchase of nature-based carbon removal credits um, from a reforestation program in Uganda. It's actually a really cool project that's designed to generate long-term sustainable income. The farmers are planting trees on their own land, so they retain ownership of the trees and their products and they receive a share of the carbon-related revenues from the project developer. So we're really proud to have that project as part of our carbon fund portfolio. And the other area where we're engaging with carbon removals is through the impact investments made by the Autodesk Foundation. Um, by increasing investment in carbon removals and bringing more projects online, we think that the cost curve for these projects can drop, which will only create you know, more opportunities for carbon dioxide removal projects to scale. So the uh, foundation sees an emerging window to create really immense societal and environmental and economic value um, and the creation of entirely new carbon removal industry in okay. the coming decades. Got it. So with this potential, earlier this year, the Autodesk Foundation made an impact investment in Heirloom, which is a California-based startup bringing to market a cost-effective, scalable, direct air capture removal solution. Got it. So, you know, I, I love that you're working together with other companies and you are you are in the forefront of this, having participated in the guide. So how will this initiative help, like specifically the, the, the new twist on what's going on? How, how will it help you uh, refine your own goals? Sure. So as Laura mentioned, are a relatively new topic for most, most everybody. Um, corporations included, and, and Autodesk included. We, we made these, this purchase and this investment you know, over the past year, year plus, but we're still figuring it out. And we see this initiative as an opportunity to go on a learning journey together with our peers, with our colleagues, um, demystify the carbon removal space and work together to develop solutions that can then be replicated by other companies and accelerate you know, decarbonization and the carbon removal space. So I personally, I believe this initiative 
is going to help us make more informed decisions around procurement and investment that we can all benefit from. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth just, you know, and you both, again, reference the sort of complexity of this and and it is sort of uh, a newer concept to to folks out there. I'm just curious, like, how, how do you, either one of you, um, look at carbon removal versus carbon avoidance? I think m- many projects in the past have been focused more on the latter. You know, what's really different about this space that that requires, you know, what is it that's so different and complex? Is it just that the that, that solutions aren't there or aren't quite scalable yet? Um, what's What makes it so hard? So removal projects are generated from activities that pull carbon out of the air and are stored. So this could be tree growth or direct air capture. Whereas avoidance projects are from activities that reduce emissions by preventing their release into the atmosphere. So this could be stopping the conversion of forests to croplands or limiting black carbon emissions from traditional cooking methods by instead using like super clean cook stoves. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the area is complex because in the removal space, we're looking, there's technologies and and products that are coming to market or that we're, we're trying to get to market that have never been seen before. Got it. Thanks, Claire. What, what Anything to add there, Maura? Yeah, I think I would add just to piggyback on what Claire shared, you know, and I think also companies in particular have now, it took a while, it took almost a decade, right, for folks to get comfortable with the avoidance offsets market, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there was, there still is, right? A lot of heated discussion about what's the right approach there, right? And then we're opening up a new door to a whole a whole new, even more complex, right? Um, and so I think while the one conversation is still going on and is is here, there's another doorway opening to, to increasing complexity, which I mean, on a personal level, I, I feel like we all need to get used to that. That's the future of climate work, right? Like there's just gonna be another door that's gonna be more complex. So. With this, like Claire said, a lot of the teams that are looking at the investments and are, you know the sustainability teams in general, they're used to looking at that landscape of the the avoidance offsets. Um, the landscape of removals is it looks much more like investing in emerging companies, right? And and how a company would approach investments versus how a company would approach mm-hmm. offset purchases. And so I think that that's also what we're seeing in our conversations and in our work is that how a company even puts together a financing strategy to support their carbon goals multiple now, it's now multiple, right? They might have removal strategy that involves a mix of impact investments and purchasing of removals versus the traditional purchasing offsets on the avoidance side. So it's changing the way they're talking about their financing strategy. It's changing the way they're talking about where the money's gonna come from. So it's a bigger conversation, I think, is all I would say. Thanks. Thanks for that additional detail. I have a question, a couple more quick questions for you before we wrap up. Um, For either of you, maybe both, will we see carbon removal purchase agreements akin to those for renewable energy? For example, we have seen companies procure renewable energy by by doing virtual power purchase agreements, um, some as an aggregation, right, where, where we have multiple companies coming in to invest in a project. Do we, will we see the similar approach in carbon removal? Yeah, I'll start. I mean, I think, I think the short answer is yes, we hope so. Right. Um, There is a track record of success in the renewable energy space, you know, with corporations and the demand um, driving the prices down and driving the development of that market. Again, this next phase has to happen a lot more quickly and in a more complex space. Right. Um, But we do hope to see that. I think it's important for these emerging 
removals startups also to have those advanced market commitments. They need it, right? And so whether that's happening through advanced purchasing of offsets in the future, or whether it's happening via impact investments. And then, and then I do think there is an opportunity too for the collective, um, you know, aggregating purchasing across companies as well. Claire? I do. I agree with Maura. I think we're seeing this just starting to take place. And I know that there are brokers out there and other service providers that are looking to do just this, but from a, from a for-profit perspective. And so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. So one final question for uh, each of you, what will success look like? So what do we need to see happen? Uh, let's just say 12 months from now, two years from now, um, Maura, Maura, let's start with you. Yeah. You know, f- for us, what success looks like is that companies move beyond the strategy and planning phase right into the action phase. And that's going to look different based on each company, but you know, that they've started to purchase removals, get comfortable with the space and what the investments are going to look like. Perhaps a number of them even make impact investments to to drive the market. You know, for me, success is also that the companies that are participating in the initiative are building their own capacity, right. On their own teams, but also collectively with their peers. Um, But ultimately what success looks like for the market is that we're driving the costs down and mass adoption starts to move in, right? Um, We all know there's no silver bullet there uh, that's gonna get us there. But, you know, for me, I think there's a big opportunity for corporates to lead. They can move much faster than governments often, right? And they can send the strong market signals. So I think what success looks like is starting to send a collective voice, strong market signals for quality projects, right? That there is a demand out there from corporations for quality projects that have real impacts for frontline communities, for biodiversity, other co-benefits, right? There there needs to be a strong and collective market signal for that. So so that's, that's our hope and that's what success looks like. I think that from the BC3 perspective, you know, we hope that you all out there can kind of download the toolkit and share it so that the capacity building happens. And if, if folks want to join the forum, they can reach out to us, Mora at bc3sfbay.org. And we're happy to have you as part of the conversation to help us solve this problem. Got it. What about for you, Claire? Yeah, I'll, I'll underscore what Mora said. I think long-term success is really bringing the cost curve of removals down, getting them to mass market where anyone can invest and purchase in them. And we see them everywhere. They're up and running and they're sequestering carbon at the rate we need them to, to mitigate climate change. And so I think in order to get there, success from our group, it really starts with empowering our members to understand the landscape of carbon removals. It's then to enable those companies to make informed investment decisions. And then together harness our collective buying power to make a signal to the market that it's important um, for companies to incorporate removals in their sustainability journeys. And so I look forward to working with Maura and anyone else um, who's going to join us on this journey together. Well, thanks to both of you for spending some time with me today. Yeah, thank you. It's been great to have a conversation. You just heard from Maura Fallon-McKnight of the Business Council on Climate Change and Claire Fitzgerald with Autodesk. Hey everyone, it's Heather. As the year winds down, we're interested in hearing from you for our first podcasts of the new year. If you're willing, give us up to 45 seconds of audio on one of the two following questions. What's your biggest takeaway from 2021? Or what are you excited about in 2022? Then email it to us at 
350 at greenbiz.com by January 3rd. Again, what's your biggest takeaway from 2021? Or what are you excited about in 2022? Thanks. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you have any questions, again, 350 at greenbiz.com. Happy holiday. You've doubtless heard the statistic many times. The built environment generates slightly less than 40% of energy-related emissions globally. Historically speaking, however, efforts to reduce emissions holistically haven't been core to the strategic agenda of the global real estate sector. That's beginning to change. In mid-October, international real estate firm Heinz announced the creation of a new position, Vice President of Carbon Strategy, to signal its deepening focus on climate risk and decarbonization. The company's former Vice President of Construction, Mike Izzo, was appointed to the new role. He joins GreenBiz 350 to chat about his new marching orders. Mike, hello. Welcome to GreenBiz 350. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. Excellent. What's the backstory of this new role? I know Heinz has been focusing on this for quite a long time, but why did this require an executive level mandate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Heinz has had a long legacy of sustainability, being a founder of both LEED and Energy Star, and we're always constantly monitoring the market to see what's changing within the sustainability sector. We happen to realize over the past few years that climate change is one of them that's infiltrating our business, both from the tenant and investor side. So for us, as part of our core competency, which happens to be energy efficiency, carbon and environmental, there was a conversion from sustainability to ESG over the past few years. And we've developed task forces, which came up, came up with 16 focus areas, and four out of those 16 areas was carbon. So we soon realized that we needed someone dedicated to carbon, an executive level position to drive our strategy going forward. What are your specific goals for reducing embodied versus operational carbon emissions? I, I'm making a distinction there, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And, and embodied carbon has its challenges today, but I think related to the embodied carbon side, it's really transparency and driving the supply chain and showing the market that we're serious and want the tr data transparency that's required in order to reduce our emissions there. Um, so for specific goals within both of those sectors, I think it's coming up with a process, coming up with credible benchmarks with a clear understanding of what the pathway is and how we lead the industry. What's your primary agenda for the next 12 months, right? That's, that's, uh, you're busy, right? <laughs> <laughs> no shortage of work, that's for sure. Um, it comes into a few different categories, obviously setting public tar targets, which we're working on now. Um, so that'll be our first primary agenda, but also enhancing the learning and development within Heinz and providing the tools and data necessary for our regions and all employees within Heinz to be as much of a carbon expert as, as any one of us are. Um, so learning and development is a key priority on the agenda. As I mentioned before, benchmarks and tools to provide real clarity. There's a lot of different frameworks out there, a lot of different geographical regions which we operate in. So providing that clarity and benchmark on, on how our buildings are performing so we can make good decisions at the time we're designing or acquisition or operating is absolutely key. And then focusing on not only collaboration with global experts in, in climate mitigation, like the Nordics, Europe, and others, how do we be a catalyst within certain markets in order to drive change? 
So I think all those uh, really set the agenda for us to lead on this effort and, and provide a pathway over the next few years. Your background is as a mechanical engineer, and it's not lost on me that your former title had the word construction in it. And I, I don't often hear about um, that sort of role being being in charge of the carbon. I you know, often see architects and planners and so forth. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, how do you think that experience is, um, is going to help uh, sort of make your strategy a little bit different, maybe a little bit more aggressive than others? I think it's always important to attack a problem from many different mindsets or many different angles. So being an engineer, working in the engineering field, moving closer and closer to construction, working as an owner in a totally different sector, which was the hospital and laboratory world, it's really given me a, a full view of emissions and energy efficiency within the built environment. Mm -hmm. So what may be sort of obvious or inherent in the real estate sector, commercial real estate sector, really is viewed completely different in the in my previous experience. Huh. Okay. And, you know, and again, given your background, what role will technology play in your plans? And that could be applied technology, building systems, or uh, information technology. Yeah, I'm really glad you actually brought up applied technology because that kind of gets lost in, in the mainstream today for us. It's really about electrification and, and getting rid of the fossil fuel heating. I mean, if we're trying to decarbonize our buildings, the one fossil fuel source that's directly utilized within them is fossil fuel for heating. So heat pumps and, and obviously solar and the other renewable technologies would definitely play a part on the applied side. But on the digital side, for sure, data transparency, tracking the data so it's traceable, auditable, uh, and transferable is, is key not only to understand where we are, hold ourselves accountable, but to also understand what our successes are and where we are on the pathway to zero. I want to go back to the electrification comments you made a moment ago. Um, we're both in the New York area, and there is some support here for that kind of technology. I'm just curious, how easy is that or how hard is that, that part of your job? It's... <laughs> It's not hard, but it's, or I should say, it's not easy, but it's also not hard. Um, mm -hmm. We've actually done a lot of work over the past three years through some Nordic contacts that I have, I have a lot of contacts in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Um, and we've really took a deep dive, gone over there a few times to understand how they're utilizing the technology in such a cold climate, much colder than New York. Mm -hmm. And we see that if you look at the Nordic Energy Agency, they've put out a report card every two years, within they've reduced their carbon emissions by 70% since 1990. And a lot of that has to do with many different things, but mostly electrification of their heating. Um, so we have two projects in New York and there'll be, there'll be many more, but one which is getting built right now, 555 Greenwich, which is a, a new development, 270,000 square foot office, but it's a fully electrified building. Mm. Um, and we've reduced not only the fossil fuel use within the building, but we've also reduced our electricity consumption as a result, just due to the highly efficient nature of the building. That's wow. a more integrated approach. Yeah. Huh. And huh. we've taken that work and have planned and are looking to implement next year. How do you do that in existing buildings? So mm -hmm. we're taking a 1930s, 900 square foot office building right next to that new development and taking the same principles 
and driving that change in, into that building and get off natural gas and steam heating. What does your organization need to do more of that? Is, is this a, um, a money thing right now, a policy thing? You know, what, what sort of other factors need to come into play to help, help with more projects like that? There's probably no silver bullet. Education and knowledge of everyone, the people who are sitting across the table from our investors, tenants, et cetera, obviously uh, is not at an extremely high level. It, it's coming up very quickly. But, and we've seen investor pressure uh, very much so. On the tenant side, we haven't seen as much pressure. There seems to be a little bit of resistance and reluctance, or maybe just distrust within the market. So mm -hmm. I'd say it's more collaborative efforts working together to reach a common goal, which mm -hmm. is truly what's needed. Mm -hmm. One final question for you. Uh, what what should Heinz's commercial customers and tenants know about your new strategy and, and how are you going to collaborate with them on it? Yeah, I, I think I'd put it very simply in, in that we're, we care, we're committed, obviously with my role being focused 100% on carbon, and we'll find a way that meets the needs of all stakeholders. And that's truly what we're getting at. We're not trying to drive the most carbon efficiency within a building, but how do we match the financial efficiency with the carbon efficiency to meet uh, the Paris Agreement goals? Well, great. Thank you. Good luck with that. Uh, I know you've got a lot, a lot of uh, strategizing to do, and I'm hoping to hear more about your, your goals next year. Um, thank you for dropping by to chat about what you're thinking about at this moment. Thank you so much, Heather. Looking forward to seeing you again. You just heard from Mike Izzo, the new Vice President of Carbon Strategy for Heinz. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and other, other things we've mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We have seven of them every week. It's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you. Your questions, your comments and tips, just hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another year-end edition of Green Biz 350 before we take a little holiday break. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.